Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein and Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to an hour of science. We will take you through until 12 o'clock. In the studio with me today is Dr. Jen. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. What a pleasure to be here with you. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad, glad to have you in here. It's great. And Dr. Ewan, good morning. Good morning. How are you, fella? Oh, I'm good, thank you. How are you? You're sounding perky, actually. Yeah, no, I'm good. Well, the sun's out, finally. Uh, for a brief period. Yeah, I know. Yeah. It is Melbourne after all. <laughs> I, know. I will say, though, this morning when I got up, I, for some reason I woke up at 5.30 this morning. I often do, actually. It's my never use an alarm again strategy, which has been working for yeah. me for the last few years. Boy, it was chilly. Yeah, it was foggy. Did you watch Eurovision? I was going to say, what, I, we, we were up at five. The I, ladies watching the house were watching I watched Eurovision. a little bit of the end of it when they were doing, when they're reading out the numbers, which is less interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but I do like seeing how various people from various countries represent themselves. It's and very cool. represent them. Mm-hmm. Some of them, you know, straight down the line. Some yeah. of them you think, whoa, <laughs> where did you get that from? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's what Eurovision is all about, right? Yeah, the, yeah. Whoa, where did that come from? I just think it's wild that Australia has somehow snuck our mm. way into this yeah. European <laughs> festival of music. Like, how did we do that? You know, I know we've got a lot oh, of big a European story. community. I read all about it, how oh. it was like initially it was just kind of one act and then we got a wildcard entry and then we managed to strike up a deal that we'd get five years, but this is the last year. So unless there's a new um, agreement struck between Eurovision and SBS, we may not be there again. I, I hope there's really? going to be another agreement. Well, agreement. Today. We're top ten. They can't kick us out now. We're I, in. Well, I think if absolutely. the US can have World Series, World Series <laughs> baseball and so forth, we can be part of Eurovision. I thought you were going to bring up the Miss Universe contest. <laughs> no, no, I'm not going there. <laughs> That's a whole different one. Anyway, it is a science show. We should get into it. We've got a great guest coming in a little bit later to talk about breast cancer and some new ideas there, which will be exciting. Dr. Jen and I are going to, uh, we're going to do some stuff later in the show, which will be cool. We are. Very cool. But we're going to start off with some news. Dr. Yun, do you want to kick us off? Sure. Well, my story is uh, about connections and it's about the mother tree hypothesis. And I thought it was an appropriate story for Mother's Day. And I will say, um, have a lovely Mother's Day, but I also recognise that for many people today is a tough day. Yep. So for... In all sorts of reasons and um, carers and, and so forth, um, you know, we're we think, thinking of you as well, so I acknowledge that too. But um, this is a really interesting hypothesis that has been around uh, for a long time, uh, this connection between plants and fungi. So we're learning more and more that these really important uh, symbiotic relationship essentially where the fungi are deriving um, nutrients from the plants and the fungi can also transport nutrients from plants to other plants, but also... Um, but there's a flow of nutrients basically between the two types of organisms. But it, this this theory has really become quite popular. In fact, there's quite a, um, a well-known book that some people would know by Suzanne Simard um, called Finding the Mother Tree. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But this this research basically set out to say, well, actually, how good is this the the sort of evidence for this this um, you know hypothesis that so basically that you have this big tree. With fungi, um, so this hyphae. So anyone who's a gardener would know when you dig up the soil, you see this kind of really fine feather-like structures, yeah. white. Yeah. They're the hyphae, and they form associations with the plants, uh, and that becomes a mycorrhizal network, okay? So the, the two are actually basically, um, you know, really strongly connected. Um, and the short answer is that there's not... Uh, really strong, convincing evidence, actually, when you look into the literature for this uh, hypothesis. There is some evidence that carbon is flowing. So the idea being that you have this big tree, of course, um, the more biomass it has, it's able to, of course, um, produce resources through photosynthesis, and then it can actually distribute that to younger trees Mm -hmm. in the same forest. And so, therefore, they're all kind of interconnected, Mm -hmm. hence the sort of Mm -hmm. idea of this mother tree hypothesis. But the evidence actually suggests that uh, it's, it's not strong that this this is kind of happening um, uniformly and sort of, you know, and into a large degree. But they do point out um, that there is still really strong evidence, um, but association, of course, between fungi and plants at an individual level. So individual trees have really strong associations with fungi. And this is particularly important in places like Australia. So 
Australia has really nutrient poor soils, like incredibly nutrient poor <laughs> soils, because of course we're one of the oldest continents on mm. Earth, and our soils have been leached, they're heavily weathered, so all the a lot of the good stuff has disappeared. But fungi is actually very good at capturing micronutrients and then providing that to the tree, and the tree in return can give carbon back, um, you know, to the to the fungi. Mm. So there's again this kind of um, symbiotic relationship going on. So yeah, there's this work that came out. Um, in the new phytologists, uh, I think uh, by uh, Henriksen and authors, I think it's just a really interesting study, sort of building on this idea of this mother tree hypothesis and, and searching for evidence. So I think it's just neat because it just really, again, I guess, emphasises just how interconnected mm. these species are, and particularly in the case of fungi. Yeah, you know, we think about birds and mammals and reptiles and amphibians and all these wonderful things that we can see above ground, yep. or even in the ocean. But fungi is often out of sight, out of mind, other than when, of course, the fruit body of a fungi pops up in Weird. your lawn or on your nature strip <laughs> and you see it and you might yeah, eat it. Yep. Hopefully you've chosen the right one to eat because many can be very toxic. Yep. So make yep. sure you're careful about that. But um, most of the time we don't see it because it's underground. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I think it's, yeah, it's just such a lovely study. idea, even if it we is. don't have really strong evidence for it yet. Yeah. But it doesn't mean it's actually not uh, happening and it would make a lot of sense. And the right? authors are at pains to say that. They're not saying it doesn't happen. Mm. They're just saying maybe it's just not happening to the degree that people yeah. have been saying and we need to keep looking um, yeah. at this. But, yeah. Presumably, too, it's tree dependent. You know, different exactly. species would may yeah. may do it to different degrees, and yeah. you know maybe they're just looking at a tree for which it's yeah. harder to find. Anyway, yeah. it, it is is it a great idea? Uh, now, one thing I want to tell you about is um, this is this was came out just last week in Lancet Oncology, which is one of the main journals on you know cancer essentially. Mm-hmm. But um, as you know, one of the you know, the worst sorts of cancers you can get is brain cancer, and, yeah. and and there's a variety of reasons for that. The obvious ones are if you try and cut you know, any sort of tumour growth out of the brain, you do not want to be fiddling with surrounding areas. That's very dangerous. But, you know, surgeons are incredible at doing this now. But the second part that we often don't think about is the ability to get drugs to the brain. So, Mm. you know, our brains have this blood-brain barrier, and this thing is a a structure is really damn good at filtering crap out from getting to the brain. Mm. Um, That's good for us, generally. (laughs) Mostly, Unless you want to get chemotherapy treatments, into the brain to deal with these tumours, of course, in which case the brain barrier says, no, no mm. can do. Um, and the ones that you can get through, there's some that you can get through, but they're, they're, they're relatively weak drugs. So they're not, they're not as good as the sort of benchmark ones you would use in other parts of the body. I remember about, oh, it must be 10, 15 years ago now, we did, I did a story on the show about the use of um, ultrasound mm-hmm. around the blood-brain barrier to open up these sort of regions and allow mm-hmm. flow of certain chemicals yes, through. Cool. This was I, I, I vaguely, you know, my memory, Jane, you know what it's like. It's great. Um, I think it came, <laughs> memory is I, exceptional. I think it came out of Canada somewhere. But there was a really interesting study, and, and I, I remember it because it was like physicists to the rescue with ultrasound, you know. Um, but essentially another group has now done this and just been working in a slightly different way. So they've actually put these sort of um, small ultrasonic generators under under the skull, so in, in the brain area, to locally um, open up the blood-brain barrier. And what they've found is when they do this, they can actually allow these more potent and more appropriately useful um, chemicals into the brain. And when they... And when they do that, of course, it means that the treatment protocols that you would otherwise not be able to use at all become available. Mm. So it's it's very early stage, but there were two things that they they found. So one is when you turn the ultrasound off when you're doing this, you actually restore uh, that the blood brain barrier restores itself. It's sort of like, oh, you know, we know what we're supposed to be doing. We'll just go back to what we were doing mm. before you disrupted us with this, <laughs> you know, with this sound wave. Um, and what they managed to do though was work out how long it took for that to occur, and it's actually really fast. So it's around the hour sort of mark. It's actually, you know, was previously thought to be around a day or half a day. So if you think about that, I'm about to give you you and your chemotherapy mm. treatment, and that's done via intravenous injection, I need to make sure that I line that timing up very specifically with when we essentially turn the blood-brain barrier partially off. Mm. Because if I don't line those two things up within that 30 to 60-minute window, no go, won't work. And so it's possible that in the past some of these tests have been done in a way that really didn't adhere to that requirement. And so that that part of the brain really goes back to normal very, very rapidly. So this is really interesting work from the point of view of A, work out a way to get across the, the barrier, but B, work out how long it takes for the barrier to repair itself so you know how to set up those protocols. So it's early work, you know, it's... Um, 
few years away before it'll be actionable in, in, in actual patients. But um, I think just understanding the mechanics of how that barrier works is, is really fascinating. And yeah, absolutely. This could really open up a lot of treatments that otherwise aren't, aren't there. And just so. realising that the timing could be the complete difference between... Working you know, not working. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, you take, you take an hour and 15 instead of 45 minutes and mm. you're doesn't work. Yeah. So it's it's incredibly um interesting stuff and I think um you know bravo to the to the group that have that have done that there at uh Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine and the Northwestern um medicine neurosurgeon in particular has been working on that which is some um, uh yeah cool stuff a guy named Adam Sonnabind. Mm-hmm. I like the fact his surname starts with Sonna. Yeah. <laughs> Sonnabind. Dr. Sonnabind working on sonification. Perfect. Love perfect. It. I love it. Jen. <laughs> Well, talking about talking about names and terms, have either of you ever heard the term before? Thanatosis. No. You no. Thanatosis. I um, hadn't heard of it either. It's also known as tonic immobility. There's oh, another that one. That makes me think of gin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can't hold my glass steady. <laughs> Both of those things are fancy names for playing dead. Oh, right. Just mm, okay. cool, right? Yeah. Thanatosis. So next time you're at a party, you can have a party trick. Anyone feels like feel like doing a bit of thanatosis, and everyone will look at you strangely. And then just fall to the floor. <laughs> but, but <laughs> playing dead is actually quite an important strategy among animals. It's mm-hmm. a way of saying to a predator, oh, don't bother coming over here and looking at me. I'm already dead. And there's a lot yep. of animals that are known to do it. Mm. Um, so the Virginian opossum in the US is mm. the most famous. It kind of opens its mouth, it sticks out its tongue, it empties its bowels, it excretes this <laughs> really foul-smelling fluids to kind of convince a predator, oh, I'm long gone, don't come near me, even that's still alive, which is quite remarkable, really, to learn. You've got to make sure you've got the right predator, though, don't you? (laughs) Because some predators don't go after you until you're dead. Opossums are not the most uh, delectable-looking animal, I have to say. (laughs) Anyway, um, I want to talk about ants. Okay. So on Kangaroo Island, there are all of these nest boxes, as in 900-odd nest boxes that were installed after the really devastating 2020 bushfires, and they put them in in both burnt unburnt, and unburnt areas, largely for pygmy possums and bats to try and create habitat for, you know, animals that are already going to be roosting and little nesting hollows in natural nesting hollows in trees, they put in nest boxes to provide, you know, the same thing when the trees have been burnt down. And so researchers were out checking the boxes, trying to keep tabs on exactly which species are using which boxes in unburnt and and burnt areas, a really important data collection. But in a number of boxes, they, you know, they opened the lid or they put their little camera in and what they found was a whole heap of what looked like dead ants. Mm. They're like, oh, you know, I have to clean out the boxes. We don't want to have them full of ants. And this is a species of ant. It's quite a shy species of ant. It lives up in trees. It's called Polarechus femorata. And and it seems like the researchers are quite fond of these ants. They must have certain characteristics that people kind of, they say they're very endearing. I don't quite know what makes an ant endearing, but anyway. <laughs> doesn't bite you. I was going to say exactly Maybe. that. <laughs> Maybe it's little, doesn't bite, hangs yeah. out in trees. But anyway, so picture that. You're a researcher, you're looking down into this box, you're like, oh damn, it's full of dead ants, what a pain. But then you look really closely and you in fact notice that one of the ants is moving. Mm. <laughs> and when you look really closely, it turns out that in fact all of the ants are still alive. They're just playing dead presumably in response to having their hollow disturbed and thinking, you know, something bad's about to happen. If we just look like we're dead, no one's going to bother us. And this is a world first. This is the first time a colony of ants has ever been recorded doing this. So individual wow. ants, maybe yes, but a whole colony never seen before. And I just love this story. So we know that ants are incredibly social. We know they do extraordinary things together, you know, making little, you know, leaving chemical trails so they mm. can follow each other. You know, we know ants are unbelievable in terms of how they work together. But I just think this is a whole new level and it really makes you think about what's going on in terms of the process of communication, that they all decide to play dead at the same time. Time. The one ant that moved, does that, you know, I think back of the, those ant movies mm, that we used to watch yeah, when our yeah. kids were leading, you know, does that one ant have everyone piling on them saying, bugger, yeah. you know, what you are you doing? Yeah. You, what I are get you doing? You um, anyway, and so the researchers said maybe these nest boxes are going to provide a really kind of easy way to study this fascinating behaviour of an ant colony that has found a way to all play dead simultaneously. Yeah. So what I would love to know there is like what is the precursor to them playing dead? Is it light? Yeah. Is it pressure? Is yeah. it sound? Is it vibration? Is it vibration? Mm. Yeah, like, I mean, what is it that they're picking up on? Because presumably, you know, the person's opened the lid 
and there's a response time, yep. right? Well, maybe it was them walking towards it yeah. that was yeah, enough absolutely. for them to pick up on it. That, that, that's the part that I'd be interested in. Yeah, me too, exactly. That, that, yeah. And, and I guess that's what they'll start doing experiments on. There'll be new ant researchers who now come and join this nest box study and do all of those things to work out, yeah, what are they responding to and how yeah. long does it take and how long does it last before they go, okay, yeah. I think we're right, let's start moving again. Yeah, and if they're fun <laughs> researchers, I'll say, you know, we checked on the, the sound stuff. We played some Bee Gees. We played some <laughs> stuff from the 50s. Uh, nothing. They did not. Not play dead. Uh, we played some Michael Bolton. They all died. <laughs> <laughs> we had to start the experiment dead. again. <laughs> all sorts of things could go. That's, oh, that's uh, harsh. It's, it's on, on which one? Harsh, <laughs> on the ants? <laughs> yeah, there's got to be an ethics approval process on these uh, ants. I, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll get let them know that you're let happy to be involved in oh. writing that ethics approval. Yeah, I think that's reasonable. <laughs> In the studio with us now is Dr. Aysen Cheng from the Monash Institute of Pharmaceutical Sciences at Monash University. Aysen, welcome to the studio. Hey, good morning. It's great to have you in here. Now, you work in a particular area of um, breast cancer research, which is this triple negative breast cancer model or, you know, problem. Just run us through what does that mean? That that's the sort of breast type of breast cancer, I assume, where the sort of those those markers, the three things, yeah, you've yeah. got none of them. Talk yeah. us through what that means. Yeah, so uh, as you've pointed to, um, so breast cancer has several subtypes, some mm-hmm. uh, overexpress estrogen or the hormonal receptors, some mm-hmm. uh, express another, another receptor that are more targetable called the HER2 receptors. Yep. So just like the triple negative breast cancer, you know, the, the name indicates it lacks the expression of these hormonal or the HER2 targetable receptors. So patients with triple negative breast cancers are typically treated with, you know, those kind of systemic chemotherapy treatment because there's lack of these other targetable options. Right. So so with if you have one of those three options, there are specific chemical treatments and and that that can essentially go after that that problem and I assume eliminate the spread of the cancer. Once, once any sort of nodules or, or, yep. or tumors are removed, is that right? Yeah, so that's why with the triple negative breast cancer, we're really relying um, quite heavily on the chemotherapy treatment because mm. that's um, the unavailability of these sort of targeted treatments that yeah. you know, other subtypes would be available. And, and chemotherapy presumably is a, a lot more harsh on yep. the body and, and, and less effective or just harsh? Um it's harsh. I wouldn't say it's less effective. So, um, c- certain patients, you know, if c- the breast cancer is, um, catch at the earlier stage, um, they do respond well with chemotherapy treatment and they do, um, enters to remission. Mm. However, some patients, um, do, uh, experience recurrence after chemotherapy right. treatment. Yeah. yeah. Now, you work on the possibility of using beta blockers with the chemotherapy. Now, correct me, I thought beta blockers stopped, stopped adrenaline and were for sort of heart conditions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you're right? right. Yeah. So beta blockers is good in this situation. No, if I'm anxious, I should take one. <laughs> 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 uh, we, we're all on them. <laughs> um, it's in the water. But you're right. So it's, it's, you know, it's discovered maybe 50, 60 years back. It's yep. used to manage uh, heart disease. But now, because we know how beta blockers work, as you've mentioned, um, it stops the action of the adrenaline or this you know, sort of fight or flight system that yep. we have very inbuilt in our body. Um, so a lot of research from my mentor, Professor Erica Sloan, and the others around the world has identified that, you know, this fight or flight uh, stress system is actually, are not great for cancer progression. You know, right. It can make them more chemo resistance or make cancer spread more. Mm-hmm. Um, the good thing is beta blockers can come in and block this pathway and therefore, you know, stops these adverse effects in terms of cancer progression. Wow. So that's, that is such a harsh uh, thing to understand in terms of, so if I end up with cancer and I get really stressed because I've ended up with cancer, that will make my cancer worse. Is is that right? Um, or, or less or less sort of amenable to treatments and so forth? Yeah. So there are studies uh, or what we call uh, meta-analysis studies so that looked at various different studies and pulled the numbers together mm. that identify an association of stress 
a stressful life experience with poorer cancer outcome. Right. So these wow. are all more the um, what we call an associative study. So people found X is linked to Y, yeah, for example. Yeah, right, right. Yep. So what we've been doing in the lab is trying to understand the molecular pathway or how is this actually happening. Mm. Yeah. I have to say, if I end up with cancer, just give me the beta blocker because I'm, <laughs> I'm going I'm to be super stressed out. Like I yeah, think that's yeah. reasonable for anyone to be mm. um, concerned. And if, if you're in a high-stress job and everything everything in your life tends to be more stressful. So yeah. it's not it's not unexpected. But as you say, association. So it could be because of that job, I have a poorer diet, I have a whole lot of other mm, things going mm, on mm. at the same time, presumably. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So how do, how do the beta blockers specifically help with the chemotherapy treatment for these mm. triple negative breast cancers? Yeah. So this is a very interesting question. I have to say, I start off the, my PhD. So this is my PhD work. I mm. started off without knowing what's going to happen. Um, but eventually what we've identified is a specific type of chemotherapy called the anthracycline. It's, it's quite old as well, but it's still, um, um, it, it's one of the key treatments for triple negative breast cancer. So what we found is that, you know, the cancer cells sometimes are really smart. When they were treated mm. with this chemotherapy, they try to change their environment. They try to enrich mm. this fight or flight neural signaling in the tumor and makes them um, more uh, invasive. Right. So what beta blockers can do is to interact with this uh, intracycline chemotherapy and stop that effects from happening. Right. Yeah. So this is within the tumor or that the cancer itself. So the cancer itself is kind of producing exactly what it needs yeah. to be better at reproducing and better at spreading. They know how to remodel. They are really smart. And that makes <laughs> and that makes them more resistant to the chemotherapy. But if you can switch off their ability mm-hmm. to actually make the environment better, that's what the beta blocker is doing. Yeah, the beta blocker stopped the the fight or flight system talking to the cancer cells. Yeah, that's wild. So following along from that, does this potentially mean that you could use less harsh chemotherapy treatment or do you still need to use the same amount? So if the beta blockers are sort of essentially facilitating the treatment, does that mean you can potentially not have as much chemo or do you still need to have the same amount? Yeah, so I think that's a really good insight. Um, We have yet to test that. So what we've been doing so far is to deliver in in, in an experimental setting, we've been delivering the same amount of chemotherapy plus or minus beta blockers. So what we found is that the combination can really delay uh, or slow down the development of metastasis yep. in the experimental setting. Um, but that's right. You know, that is something uh, we will look into in terms of can we actually reduce the amount of chemotherapy mm. treatment needed? Because mm. that would also mean an improvement with you know, exactly. quality of life yeah. in patients. Yeah. We, we, we often hear the term beta blockers, plural. Is mm. Are there many types of beta blockers and are some more effective at doing this or is is that just a term that means there's one beta blocker and we just say beta blockers all the time? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Great question. Um, So there are various types of beta blockers, um, some that are what we call non-specific. So they not only bind to, for example, beta 1 receptor, but also binds to beta 2 receptor. Mm -hmm. So these are the older generation beta blockers, uh, for example, we call uh, propranolol. And then they are the more modern type uh, beta blockers, they are specific for the heart condition. They are more the beta one right. uh, specific ones. Um, from a cancer uh, or triple negative breast cancer treatment perspective, um, uh, the study is actually revealing that we actually need the beta two blocking abilities. That's why a lot of the studies in uh, uh, my research is looking at propranolol, but we've got more collaborators that are interested with the newer generation, mm. um, which is another one called Cavadolol, that could also block the beta-2 receptor and also good for the heart. Yeah, it's interesting too because I, I suppose now there is this opportunity for you know pharmaceutical research to be designing beta blockers specifically for cancer treatment, not for, not for heart treatment, which has been, you know, these are all off-label mm. sort of Usage, yep. right? So, is there is there interest in that? I think um, it needs. We need to have more sort of a molecular understanding to to attract um, the pharmaceutical company mm. to be able to invest. Yep. So we do have collaborators that are trying to understand the whole how 
cancer cells is responding to this fight or flight system with the beta 2 receptor in a more um, mechanistic manner. It's really trying to tease out um, a better way to target this. Yeah. Uh, with more of that insights, then maybe we can drive more um, interest from the pharmaceutical company to develop a more targeted treatment rather yeah. than, like you said, no yeah. off-label use. I, I suppose it's good too because we know beta blocks are safe um, yeah. for people to take, which is great. So in terms of um, the actual progress on whereabouts are we so there's obviously there's the stuff in the dish there's the rodent model there's yeah. the inhuman trials where along that pathway are we with this work at the moment yeah so i can only speak specifically with breast cancer um so we've done a lot of the dish work we've done the animal experiments um, and then we have strong um, evidence from what we call the epidemiological studies. So like I said, the associative studies of beta blocker use and, you know, cancer treatment outcome. Um, So my mentor, Professor Erica Sloan, has done a phase two clinical trial with Peter Mac uh, maybe a few years back. Um, But what we're really looking forward to is actually design a phase three clinical trial. But I guess one of the hurdles is really the funding. Yeah. but that will be so important for us to introduce, like, you know, she said, a safe, well-tolerable, well-characterized um, a drug, which is pizza blocker, into the standard treatment for patients. Yeah. it's Look, it's wild stuff. And it's it's so interesting whenever you hear about these sort of off-label use of drugs in a completely different area from where they were designed, having such a profound impact. So, Asin, thanks so much for coming in today. Say hello to Erica Sloan for us because she used to be on the show decades ago. Some of our older (laughs) listeners may remember Erica was part of the the show. It's lovely to hear that she's back in Melbourne doing some amazing work and and helping you out. Yep. Thank you. Thanks, Shane. Folks, uh, that was Dr. Asin Chang from the Monash Institute of Pharmaceutical Sciences at Monash University. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Ewan, what is the first thing you do every day when you get up and you pull up your phone? What do you look at first? Mm. Let me answer that question for you because I know you're looking for new pictures from James Webb Telescope. <laughs> Possibly. 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 <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm right about it. Uh, yeah, maybe, maybe not. Anyway, uh, but it's interesting because the the James Webb Telescope has been up for a while now. You know, went up um, over a year ago, and uh, well, you know, and it's been doing some amazing stuff, right? We've seen you know the best ever pictures of Uranus, Uranus, if you prefer. I grew up in the western <laughs> suburbs, so uh, yeah. <laughs> and we've seen some incredible stuff. There was a picture the other day of Fermilhot, the one of the stars, and, and showing a asteroid. Belt around this star, oh, the wild images, stuff, the wild are stuff. Amazing. You know, looking back further in time than we've ever been able to look at before. The question is, though, who works out where it's pointing? Like, how do you work out what it's looking at on a given mm. day? And I thought this was really interesting, but they're about to um, enter into what's called cycle two, which is like the second year of operation. This is happening relatively soon. And the cycle two applications have just come out in terms of which ones were successful for time on the telescope. So, mm-hmm. you know, we only have one. <laughs> it can only point in one direction at a time. So there's some limitations as to what can happen. And it would be um, there were 1,600 applications um, from 5,450 researchers in total, so a lot of teams involved, yep. from 52 countries. So that's what went into the mix. And there is a process whereby you you work out, you know, what you get. And there's, there's two main things. There's sort of what's called general observer type uh, applications. So these are the ones with new stuff. And then there's archival proposals, which is support for existing work that's sort of there. And they have to all be assessed. So... One way to think of it is there's about 5,000 primary hours available of um, viewing time for the telescope in that year. Now, if you do your math quickly, Ewan, that's 208 <laughs> days, right? Yeah. <laughs> not, not quite. So it's not quite, you know, there's some downtime because you've got to steer the thing as well. You've got to, you know, yeah. change its direction and so forth. Um, so 5,000 hours available, total requested time. From all the applications, thirty-five thousand hours. I was going to say, I, I was pretty sure there'd be a big difference yeah, there. <laughs> yeah. So do the quick math, and you and I know you're going to agree with this. We need another six James Webb telescopes put up in the sky. <laughs> another six. 
Now we've got the money. You know we can afford it. It's, we do have the money. That's the problem. It's one sub. I'm just I know. <laughs> I, I, I'm on board with that. <laughs> anyway, suffice it to say, this is a very popular instrument and the only one of its kind. You know, Hubble is over 30 years old now. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think to myself, I've started giving talks on Hubble to people who weren't born when <laughs> Hubble was put up. <laughs> feeling a little old. Um, but, you know, Hubble's done an amazing job and still mm. doing an amazing job. But one of the things that we knew um, about Hubble when it was first put up is that it would need routine maintenance. Mm. And with the ending of the space shuttle program, that maintenance is now done. So you can do some things remotely, but generally speaking, if it needs any major swap outs of components that's it you know it's it's going to be a, a dead a dead telescope but james webb brand new working well and so the, this allocation process um is quite intricate and it's done in a way that i think is really fascinating it's called the dual anonymous peer review system or DAPA, and essentially it's double blind so what happens is mm-hmm. um you the reviewers sort of see the they don't see who the applications are from. So it's all about the science, which is a little different. Now, I know there's still some right. biases in there. But, say, presumably, um, if you know which lab is doing which particular work, there yeah, would be some. Yeah, you can still get some biases yeah. in there. And, and But, you know, they, they do go out to many, many reviewers. So there's a lot of sort mm. of um, stuff going on there. I'm, I'm sure there's still many people, you know, get the result, didn't get, didn't get yeah. the time pissed off. I understand that. Like mm. there's never going to be 35,000 hours requested, 5,000 hours available. No one's going to be completely happy. Um, but this process is interesting because it does seem to de- you know, decrease the disparity of the rate of success between um, male and female applicants, which mm. is which is interesting. Decreases the rate of that. doesn't completely yeah. remove it. And if the yeah. in- input condition is such that, you know, That's seven-tenths right. of them are men, well, obviously, yeah. Yeah. you know, there's going to be a, a bias there. But it um, it's one of those things where I think um, not having names all over applications yes. is something that we've talked about for many years with the Australian Research Council and the NHMRC, the National Health and Medical Research Councils here in Australia, and how good it would be if we could separate these things mm. out. So, yep. And I suppose people, the way to think of that is I send my application with my project to Ewan and I send my application with who I am and what I've done exactly. to Dr. Jenny yep. and I get two marks back. In the the CV is independent of your yep. idea. And so I might be an early career researcher who has the most amazing idea and I get top marks from from you and I get lower marks, obviously, relative to how long I've been in my career from Jenny. But no one's saying, oh, look, you, you've only been a researcher for three years. That's not feasible for you. You don't have any yeah. grey hair. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you don't you're have n- enough wrinkles. <laughs> and and your, your genitalia is in the wrong place. You know, like, yeah. Um, you know, so that would be a very, very interesting upgrade. I think, Absolutely. Occurred. So I think um, it is interesting, though, like ultimately there's a, you know, we have a ministerial oversight here of mm. experience, which everyone has an issue with. There is a director oversight with the, the web as well, so they have to sign off eventually. But that seems to be far less controversial than a non-scientific I was going to say, um, because, you know, the director ministerial. still has knowledge of the, the, the area as opposed to a yeah. minister. Yeah. <laughs> and they have different types of applications going in. So, for example, it, it often depends on the time that you're asking for, So, um, and they go to different panels or committees. Yeah. So if you ask for less than 15 hours on the telescope, you get uh, distributed to one 197 external reviewers uh, do that. They have Whoa. a look at it. doesn't go to all of them, but there's a group of them and they all review. Yeah. And so they're called small proposals. Um, the sort of small to medium ones are 15 to 35 hours. Um, and then the medium ones are 35 to 75 hours. And then if you're over 70, you want the telescope for over 75 hours, you greedy bugger, mm. um, <laughs> you, you go to the big panel. Like there's a big executive committee and they look at you and you go, Ewan, you're one guy. No. Yeah. Go somewhere else. Yeah. Um, and so there's this, this elaborate schema for the way they do it. But I, I just wanted to read out one that got through because it's really exciting. I was yeah. looking through all the abstracts. because you can, you <laughs> It's can not yours, it is it, Shane? It's not mine, but you'll appreciate why this one is important. Um, it says it's uh, application number 3838. If you want to look it up, folks, you can. They're all publicly <laughs> I'm Googling available. right now. Uh, does atmospheric composition actually trace formation? Observing aligned versus misaligned hot Jupiters as a test bed. Exciting, right? That's quite a mouthful. <laughs> yeah. I don't really know what it means, but well, I'm sure it's exciting. The primary investigator, James Kirk. 
Ah, oh, of course. <laughs> That's why you like it. I saw that and I thought, whoa, <laughs> this guy is my sort of researcher. Um, also with a KPI, Eva Maria Ahere, who, you know, good stuff. But James Kirk is the primary yeah. investigator. If something big comes out and it's got James Kirk's name all over it. I'm, I'm disappointed if Spock's not a co-investigator as well. but <laughs> Didn't get through. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> tried. <laughs> tried but didn't get through. Anyway, so I think it's, it's really interesting looking at this though. Um, and I remember when I first started, there's a researcher, my then supervisor um, named Rachel Webster. She was on the time allocation committee for the Hubble. Mm-hmm. And I saw some early data as a result. It was really cool. And that was a long time ago. <laughs> um, but it is a very detailed process to hand out time on these telescopes because it is extremely rare. Mm-hmm. And um, suffice to say, as I said, Ewan, uh, we need another six. Like I said, I'm all for more money for science tech. So. <laughs> 100%. Um, and keep looking up those pictures every day. I do. There's some amazing <laughs> stuff coming out. It's very exciting. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. Science, Dr. Jen. It's, it's a difficult area of discussion sometimes. Yeah, look, it is a really difficult area. And I do want to follow on a little bit from what you were just talking about in terms of how different people are represented, I guess, when there's important mm. decisions to be made. And I think we all know that science does have somewhat of a history of elitism and, and exclusion. Yeah. And we know that minority groups often fare very, very badly in the world of science. Mm. And so, you know, there are many ongoing programs out there in the world. Obviously, gender equity is one that we're all very familiar with. There are many programs to try and encourage um, more girls and women to be involved in STEM. Superstars of STEM. I mean, Athena Swan, there's lots of great programs out there to not only get more girls into STEM, but to try and make sure that STEM workplaces are safe and equitable and free from harassment so that women can stay in these workplaces. Um, But, you know, we know gender equity continues to be a really big problem. Mm. Um, Editorial boards is Mm. is a key example. So editorial boards are really important. Basically, these are the elite decision makers who get to decide which papers and therefore by extension which researchers um, are driving the scientific discourse mm. forward. The Editorial gatekeepers, boards. basically. Yeah, they are. They're the gatekeepers. Yeah. So whether or not you get published. Exactly, yeah. whether or not you get published. And so it's absolutely essential that journal editorial boards are diverse with many different opinions and and um, ideas represented. Mm. But that's obviously not the case. There's been heaps of studies that have shown us that there's a lack of diversity among journal mm. editors. So there was one study published this year that looked at 81,000 editors across 15 disciplines and found that only 14% of editors and 8% of editors-in-chief were women. Wowee. It's really low, right? Well. That's, 8% like, of editors-in-chief. That's You'd almost have to work hard to achieve that, I think. It's, yeah. Yeah, that's quite... It's fairly depressing. I mean, is. I knew it was bad, but I didn't quite appreciate just how bad it was. Yeah, 81,000 papers. Uh, I'm not sure if the data's in front of you, but is that tracking in a certain direction or is it sort of stable? Uh, that's a good question, Shane, and I don't know. My suspicion is that it's that it's pretty stagnant. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. But but anyway, so that's you know, so that's one part of where we know there's a real lack of equity mm. in the world of science. But today I actually want to talk about a different kind of discrimination in science, um, and that's racial discrimination. Mm. And look, this is clearly a really sensitive issue. We are three white people yep, sitting yep. in a studio who all speak English as our first language proposing that we talk about racial discrimination. And uh, for all of our listeners, we've actually been emailing about this all week. <laughs> Backwards <laughs> a lot and of forwards. emails. A lot yeah. of emails. Yeah. I went through yeah. them all again today yeah. um, to really discuss whether this would be acceptable and, and appropriate and sensitive for us to discuss because, you know, I'm painfully aware of the fact that sitting here in the studio today, we don't have anyone who can represent the viewpoint of a non-white scientist. Um, and it would actually have been much easier, I think, mm. to choose to talk about a different topic today, but I didn't. And the reason I didn't is because I want to talk about a really big, really, really big new study that's Mm. just been published. Um, And I think it's a really important piece of research. And I think it's essential that anyone who has any interest in science, which I assume everybody who's listening has Mm. some interest in science, needs to be aware of the results of this paper around racial discrimination. That's the key thing, awareness, right? That's the first part of the process. Absolutely. And and if we're aware about it, we can think about what it means in terms of the research that is being published and that we get to hear about and really the lack of diverse Mm. voices that are being heard in the scientific literature. So I'm really aware that, you know, full disclosure, we are all white, Mm. but I really want people to know about this study yep. because yeah. I think and it's we're really not important. proposing the solutions where like you say no. we're, we're talking about the, the issues that exist but we're not 
um, yeah. Yeah, 100%. Um, and, and, you know, racial disparity in research has been documented in so many different areas. This is adding to a really mm. big knowledge. So, for example, I found a study that showed that East Asian scientists made up less than 7.7% of quotes in news articles that are published in the journal Nature, but they constitute somewhere between 14 and 33% of all of the relevant authors. Mm. Interesting. That's, yeah. that's big, right? So that means that these East Asian yeah. scientists are yeah. publishing the work, but they're not being asked to to discuss yeah. the work when yeah, so ask someone else. Yeah, exactly. That we'll ask wasn't actually else. on the paper. Yeah. yeah, or or potentially if there were authors, yeah, if there yeah. were, you yeah. know, a mix of authors, mix on the of paper. authors. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so so to understand more about racial discrimination in academic research, this new study that's just been published, and as I said, it was huge. They had a data set of a million papers, wow. a million papers published between 2001 and 2020 involving 65,000 different editors in 500 different journals. So we are talking a really impressive data set, yep. um, largest data set of its kind. We're talking six major publishers. So um, some of them were PLOS, the National Academy of Sciences, Frontiers, Hindawi. You know, so mm. we're talking a really great spread. Um, and the paper was uh, written by, or the research was done by three computational social scientists who are based in the United Arab Emirates. Okay. And they looked at three things. They looked at editorial board composition, which, as we've just said, the editorial board is essential because mm. they are the gatekeepers for what is being mm. published. Then they looked at the review time, so the, the acceptance delay, if you like. How long does it take from the time you submit your paper to it being accepted? And then thirdly, citation rates, which we know citation rates are really important because are people reading your paper? Mm. Are they recognising that it's important? Are they citing it? Mm. So three areas they looked at across these million papers. And that um, third one's an interesting one because often people will read it, use it, not cite it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and yeah. we need to understand more about yeah, yeah. what Why sort that of is too, yeah. Yeah. what is leading to that discrimination mm. exactly. So the first one, the first area they looked at editorial board um, composition. Now we've there's been research on this before, which has clearly showed racial and um, geographic disparities, but never before has there been a study which actually compared the racial composition of the editorial board of a journal compared to the racial composition of the scientists who publish in right. that journal. It's the first time this yep. has been done, um, and what they found was that there are 13 nations, all of them in Asia, Africa, and South America which were underrepresented yep. on editorial boards. Mm-hmm. And, in fact, most countries in Asia, Africa and South America have fewer editors than there should be in relation to their share of the authorship right. in those right. journals. Yep. That's a really important and, and disturbing finding, I think. So the people making decisions about which papers are getting published in these journals do not represent the diversity of the people who are mm. wanting to publish in those mm. journals or who, in fact, are publishing in yep. those journals. Yep. Can I can I jump ahead and ask whether they make recommendations to said journals to maybe have a look at their editorial <laughs> committees and so forth? A hundred percent. So the biggest recommendation to come out of this is to say that journals need different practices around a whole lot of their processes, one yeah. of them being how they appoint their editorial boards. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely mm. essential. Yeah. I think it, it's it's interesting too because one of the things is I was reading an editorial actually in science.org this week entitled It Matters Who Does Science. Mm. And it, it comes to the crux of a lot of this where this this really speaks to, you know, scientists and other group of autom- automatons that, no. you know, have no background to them when they do their work. So some of that you know, all of our backgrounds leaches into the work we do and the mm. way we describe it and so forth. So if that's if that the way that work is represented mm. is assessed by someone who definitely has a very different background to that, that will that will change that assessment. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this article is very particular about talking about the strength of science coming from diversity of ideas. Mm. Yeah, which is exactly what science is. Exactly. <laughs> well, you know, that's the, the contest of, of ideas, right? Contest of ideas. <laughs> and in fact, you know, if you aren't trying to falsify something yep. as, as fast and as hard as you possibly yep. can, the science will be weaker yep. as a result. So, you know, by not having that. It actually weakens science. It yeah. doesn't, yeah. you know, the this old world mindset is that it strengthens it. Actually, that's wrong. It's actually yeah. weaker yeah. as a result. And so, if you're publishing from from a background that's very different from those who are assessing you, 
odds are you'll have a harder time publishing mm. and yeah. getting funding and everything else. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And that has really important flow on effects. Yeah. Um, so, so the second area as that I said I wanted to speak about were these racial disparities between the time between submitting a paper and having that paper accepted. Mm. So as I said, that's mm. known as acceptance delay. And it's really important because we know peer review is essential for scientific yeah. rigour, yep. um, but prolonging the process can have a massive impact on researchers. You know, if you've yeah. only got a limited amount of money or time, you know, you're on a short-term contract, whatever it is, you know, having long delays can be incredibly um, problematic. Mm. And we know that there's all sorts of biases in this system. People know the peer review system is really problematic. So, for example, we know that um, papers whose authors are editorial board members tend to get published more quickly. Big surprise. Most, the most <laughs> frequent um, contributors to a journal tend to get published more quickly. Yeah. We know that people from high-income countries have, ex- have shorter acceptance delays. So we already know a lot about this. Um, but this was, again, a, you know, this huge data set. And what they found was that of the 20 countries who have the longest um, delays in paper acceptance, 19 of them, 19 out of 20, are in Asia, Africa and South America. So the ones with the smaller representation on the editorial board. Exactly. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. one exception was the Netherlands. For some reason, the Netherlands also fits into that category. But essentially, 19 out of 20 of these countries experiencing longer delays than we should expect based, you know, if all else were yep. equal, they are these same these same countries. Um, and, and this is, again, a new finding. So this is really mm. important. And the third area, as we said, is citation rates. And, again, we've got past studies that have shown that there's definitely a gap in citation rates across disciplines and across different geographic areas. But the interesting thing is that the previous studies of all quantified the citation gap only taking into account things like publication year and publication venue, the author's affiliation, the author's discipline, right. all ignoring what you would assume is actually the single most important factor as to whether a paper gets cited or not, and that is the content of the paper, right? right? Yeah. That should yeah, yeah. be what determines it. And so this paper used a new metric called citation lensing that uses um, some careful textual analysis to look at similarity of different papers in terms of the actual text. And so it's the first time that someone's actually looked at the number of citations per paper relative to textually similar papers that you would expect, if all of us were equal, would get cited to the same degree. So it's a really important new way of looking at this kind of analysis. And you won't be surprised to hear the results showed really clearly that globally scientists in Africa, the Middle East, Latin America and the Caribbean are cited significantly less um, often across all disciplines um, Mm. compared to, say, those in North America. Um, So, you know, taken together, these findings show us a much better, I think, and deeper understanding of some of these really confronting and difficult inequalities experienced by non-white scientists. And I think we all need to be aware of it. Mm, yeah. It's really I, important. I, when I was back actively as a researcher at University of Melbourne, one of my first PhD students was from Ghana mm-hmm. in West Africa. So hello there, Eric Ampen, listen, if you're listening, Dr. Eric. Indeed. Um, and when he first started with me, you know, English was well and truly his second language. He mm. struggled a lot. And the amount that he had to learn mm. relative to the other students was, you know, three or fourfold. And he was one of the most kick-ass researchers <laughs> I've ever worked with. But did he, you know, did he get credit for any of that? Of course, no. It was no. just a time load, but he still kept up with everything else. Mm. And I can imagine, you know, you know, he's he's left the scientific career. He was a, born teacher, loved teaching. And that's <laughs> frankly, that's, I think, his best his best future is being with kids and teaching because he's just yeah. an amazing guy in that sense. Um, but I can imagine him going through that and, and suffering the same level of discrimination you, you're talking about. And, you know, I even saw some of it when he was, you know, in the uni with me, you know, just slight differences in the way people interacted with him and, mm. and so forth. I thought, this is a guy who's working twice as hard, at least, as everyone I've worked with, um, has has come from an economic position that, you know, most of us would just not even try to do what Absolutely. he did. And he did some of the best work in our group. It was extraordinary. And I, when I hear about this and think, were his publications, I, I, I don't recall whether that was the case. And, mm. you know, I should have been aware of that, you know, at the time, making sure that his publications got through as quickly as everyone else's in the group. Mm. And I don't know. I actually am not not sure whether that was the case. And so as you said at the start, Ewan, like awareness of that difference, um, you know, we should be, everyone should be calling on these journals. And I know this is three years 
the date is three years old, but, it is. but it's just come out. Yep. So, you know, if, if you were one of those 500 journals in that study, which is the majority, <laughs> yep. time to... Yeah, yeah, and that, and that's kind of where they get to. Basically, that you know, publishers must carry out internal audits mm. to to really detect and then eliminate you know any of these biases that are occurring in the publication process from the, who they select to be on their editorial yeah. boards. Yeah. Right time to ha- to how the review process is done and what judgments might be slipping in. According to you know, you may not know very much about the author, but you know, the, the editors, the handling editors. You know, this is not peer review when it's p- yep. potentially double blind. The editors do know the names of the people, you know, mm. often the people who are submitting the paper. They mm. do know their affiliations. Um, and then we need to think about how published manuscripts are promoted in terms of who is doing the media work, who's been yep. given the opportunity to talk about this work. Um, but, but they basically say, look, this is absolutely the responsibility of publishers and journals, but it's not just falling on their shoulders. Mm. This is something that, in fact, everybody in the scientific community needs to be aware of. And we need to create a scientific ecosystem system where these biases have there is no place for this kind of discrimination mm. and, and and I think it falls on each of us to think about well what would that look like for me what could Absolutely. I do differently yeah we, we have all sorts of conversations with the show obviously you know because we get researchers from all over the place which is great yeah, yeah. it's wonderful and often you know uh, one of the things that happens straight away is when people have traditionally for people that look like me and you and mm. difficult to pronounce names, they will give you an alternative. Mm. And generally we're like, no. No, no. no. It's teach it's on teach us me. To learn. It's on us. <laughs> exactly. Teach me the, the harder version. Absolutely. And I, I'll admit I butcher some of them. And even I if we get it wrong, at least you're trying, right? You're trying. Exactly. And I often think there was one a few years back where the person said, oh, it doesn't matter, but, you know, my parents are listening. And I just, I'm like, your parents are listening. It We've matters. got to get your name right. You know, like if there's <laughs> one thing we can do for you, on yeah. your show, it's at least to take the time to learn how to, how to say respect. your name. It's a basic, it's a basic element of respect, yeah. right? Yeah, hundred mm, percent. So well, I, I just, you know, I think we all need to think about this a bit more. And more, more than yeah, a lot. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And anyone out there who is involved in any way with the with the world of publishing out there, let's think about what we can. Yeah, do differently. 100%. Yep. Yeah. And I should say, uh, just yesterday, no, Friday. What day is it? Sunday. Friday. <laughs> on, Who knows what day it is? Know, Friday on Twitter, I announced uh, the application yes. process for the next 20 PhDs in 20 oh. minutes program. Doesn't matter where you're from. Um, as long as you can put two good sentences together about your research, you've got a chance of getting through. And I essentially, I don't assess that based on who they are, where they come from, anything. It's just the science there. But I can tell you right now, I make sure that there is a one of the little tags mm. in there is there is a good diversity mix. And we try and do that every time. We've had people from all over the world in the past. So if you're a PhD student and you want to get on radio, um, follow my, find my Twitter feed when's the, somewhere. When's the deadline? I want everyone Next Friday. to apply. Okay, everybody. Yeah, this is coming Friday. Yeah, 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 I'll give it a yeah. boost. Already got quite a few. So yeah, I bet you have. Not too big a boost, but uh, <laughs> it's a good program. Anyway, thank you, Dr. Yun. Good to see you thank again. Thank you. Dr. Jen, great work. Always a pleasure, Dr. Shane. And, uh, folks, we're going to hand over to Phil for Cam, actually, in a moment. It'll be uh, Billy Shears, I think, running the show. And uh, you've been listening to Einstein and Gogo. Remember, science is everywhere. I'm Dr. Shane. Have a great Sunday, and we will chat to you again next weekend. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein and Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.